Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he comes. Thank you that he dies. Thank you that he rises again. Thank you that he is with us. You, the God of angel armies, always by my side. You do not love us and leave us. You stick with us. Even when we're tempted to wander, as the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are for us. And thank you that the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus proves that. So give us ears to hear your word this morning. Give us eyes to see the glory and the grace of Jesus. Give us hearts to love Jesus afresh and anew. And give us hands and feet to obey him and knees to bow before him. In his name and for his glory, I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us this morning. I encourage you to find a copy of a Bible and to open that copy of the Bible to Mark chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have a Bible for you. You'll find that near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. It's page 1013 in that copy of the church Bible. And as you see here this morning, we are going to conclude our gathering around our Lord's table. And so if you came in this morning and didn't pick up a communion cup from out in the lobby, feel free to make your way out there at this time and do that. And as you're finding your way in, or finding your place in Mark chapter 15, let me just say this. It is very fitting that we would conclude this service and this text in Mark 15 around our Lord's table. I think one of the great questions we have and some of the doubts that we fight as followers of Jesus is, does he really get us? Does he really know what we experience here in this world? I think sometimes we feel as though Jesus is distant and disconnected because he is in heaven with his Father. We forget that Jesus walked our streets. He sat at our tables. He he faced what we face. He, dealed, he, he dealt with what we deal with. This is Jesus, the one who knows, the one who cares, the one who gets where we are and what we face. For those of you who, like us, have experienced a miscarriage, you'll know that there is a difference between someone coming up to you and saying, I care for you, and someone coming up to you and saying, I care for you because I've been where you are. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're facing. And as we walk out of this room this morning, I want us to know that Jesus knows and Jesus cares. That's what he's been showing us all the way along in Mark's gospel as he is marching toward the cross living his life on purpose for us, and now fulfilling that purpose in the scene before us in Mark chapter 15. Let's pick up this text where Jesus shows that he knows. Mark 15, beginning in verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, 
And they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Oh, you have said so. And the chief priests accused Jesus of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he, that is Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, well, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of our God. This is the Son of God. Just a little over a week ago, on Wednesday, October 25th, a lone gunman entered two locations in Lewiston, Maine, murdering 18 people and injuring many more. And what's shocking about that? is that we weren't shocked by that. We're saddened for the families impacted, families whose lives will never be the same. We're outraged by the depravity of this, the utter disregard for God-given human life. But we aren't shocked by this. It's happened too many times in too many places affecting too many people. And each time that it happens, we're reminded that we live in a deeply broken world. Because when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, that forbidden fruit back in the Garden of Eden, they sent humanity into a tailspin of depravity. We're all sinners. And as sinners, we're born into this world looking out for number one. If we could take a peek into the church nurseries this morning, we would see that truth playing out in real time. I mean, the cutest boys and girls in the world. By the way, I think here at Bethel Baptist Church in Schaumburg, Illinois, we have the cutest boys and girls in the world. All right, that's a parent right there. That's a parent. <laughs> But you know what they're doing? The cutest little boys and girls in the world, you know what they're doing this morning? They're posturing and positioning themselves to protect their own turf. That's my ball. Give it back. That's my toy. These are your kids. Not long ago, they were our kids. They're playing politics as little ones. They are leveraging people and situations for their personal advantage. It's alive and well in our nursery this morning. And it's probably alive and well in your world this morning. Maybe it's at work where bosses and coworkers are climbing all over people just to move up the corporate ladder. Maybe it's even in your family. 
You know, as a pastor, I've seen a grown son pull a fast one with the last living parent's will, ensuring that he received most of the inheritance. In one way or another, we've all been on the receiving end of others scheming and conniving and playing politics at our expense because we live in a deeply broken world full of deeply broken people. Jesus gets that. He knows that. He's lived that. He's been caught in the crosshairs of people playing politics because the big idea of this scene in Mark 15 is that Jesus experiences this world's brokenness when being delivered up for our salvation. Let that sink in. The creator of this world subjects himself to the brokenness of this world, but as we're going to see, he is not overcome by it. In this scene, God is literally, we can see him overturning the evil intentions of wicked men to bring about our eternal good and to win our salvation when Jesus is delivered over to death for me. In fact, that word delivered is the key word in these 15 verses. Mark uses it three times. Verse 1. Jesus is delivered over to Pilate. Verse 10, Jesus is delivered up by the high priests. Verse 15, Jesus is delivered by Pilate to be crucified. Mark wants us to know that from every angle we see, every angle we're looking in on this scene, that Jesus is being delivered to death. Why? Many of us have seen the, the film the Passion of the Christ by Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson's film, he does a great job, a commendable job at um, capturing the reality of a crucifixion. But the problem with that film is that Mel Gibson fails to place the crucifixion of Jesus within context. Why does Jesus die? Why is Jesus delivered over to death? Why is Jesus crucified? And you know, that is the big question that Pilate asks in this scene. It's verse 14. Why would I deliver Jesus over to death? What evil has he done? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Jesus has done nothing wrong, and yet, yet he's executed as though he's done everything wrong. Why? Politics. Politics. With the chief priests, it's a political power play. With Pilate, it's political convenience. With a murderer named Barabbas, he's a political pawn. In fact, the only character in this scene who isn't involved in the politics of this scene is Jesus. He is not a political victim. He is a willing sacrifice. He's laying down his life. He is being delivered over to death so that we can be delivered from death. That's what he's been saying he will be doing all along. He's called this. He's prepared his disciples for this. He said this would be his destiny he will die on purpose to save his people from their sins. And it's through the broken politics of this world that Jesus will intentionally secure our redemption. 
It's what we see playing out right here when the chief priests engage in an epic political power play. Now, when we come to this scene, we need to remember where we've been. Remember that under the cover of darkness, the chief priests have arrested Jesus. They've subjected Jesus to a mock trial. They've accused him of blasphemy because he claims to be the Messiah. They don't believe him. Not a chance. Even though he's proven to them that he is the Messiah, he's healed people of their diseases. He's freed people from their their demons. He's even brought dead people back to life. But the religious leaders have blown it all off. They claim that Jesus' power is from the devil himself. That's their story, and they're sticking to it. Why? Everybody knows why. That's what Pilate himself says in verse 10. The religious leaders are envious of Jesus. That's why they want to crucify Jesus. They're especially envious of his power and his popularity. They can feel their authority over the Jewish people slipping through their fingers. Everybody's enthralled with Jesus. They're taken with Jesus. And so Jesus must be eliminated at all costs. So as the sun is rising early on a Friday morning around 6 a.m., the chief priests call an emergency meeting. They're reconvening the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish religious ruling council. And we need to remember that it's only been two or three hours since they adjourned their midnight trial of Jesus. But since that was an illegal proceeding, they need an after-sunrise trial to make this look legit. You can read about this phase of the trial in Luke 22, verses 66 through 71, where they officially now find Jesus guilty of blasphemy. They bind his hands. They lead him away. They deliver him now to Pilate, who's going to join in their conspiracy out of political convenience. You see, Pilate's got skin in this game. He's been appointed by Rome as governor over the Judean region of Israel. And as governor, his number one job is to protect the political interests of Rome in Israel. Now, I'm going to give you a little history here. How many of you are history fans? All right. What's wrong with the rest of you? <laughs> history is awesome. I mean, it's, and history helps you, helps you interpret the present. So all of you... This isn't, this isn't the big idea of the sermon. Go home and become a history fan. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, um, unpack for you some history here. So I really need you to stick with me for a while. For you to really understand the pressure that Pilate is feeling, there are some things you, you need to know about him because when we arrive in Mark 15, Pilate is already on thin ice with Rome. He's already done some big-time boneheaded stuff as governor in Judea. When he arrived in office, he wanted to do so with a bang, and so he marched through Jerusalem in this big parade with these large banners bearing the image of Tiberius Caesar, and then he had those banners hung everywhere in Jerusalem, including the temple. Well, what do you think that did to the Jews? That enraged the Jews. They are under the thumb of Rome, and now we have images of the Caesar hanging in our temple a pagan emperor 
The Jews are outraged. They're, it's blasphemy to them. And so Pilate agrees to, to meet with the Jews in the amphitheater to discuss this. And when the Jews arrive, he surrounds them with soldiers and he threatens to kill them. The Jews called his bluff. Many of them laid down and they bared their necks. And Pilate caved and eventually removed the images. On another occasion, Pilate needed some money for a new aqueduct, and so he raided the temple treasury and stole their money. And when the Jews staged a protest, uh, Pilate mobilized the Roman soldiers disguised as normal everyday citizens who beat many of the protesters to death. That's just two examples. But now you know why the Jews hate Pilate. And you know why Rome is annoyed with Pilate. All Rome wants Pilate to do is preserve peace and collect taxes. Emperor Tiberius is so ticked off by this time with Pilate that he has already placed him on probation. And so here in Mark 15, when the religious leaders bring Jesus to Pilate, they know he's feeling the pressure. They know he won't survive another riot, and, and so they're going to use that. They're going to play that. In John 19, the religious leaders instruct the crowd that's gathered there before Pilate's palace to say, listen, Pilate, if you don't kill Jesus, you cannot call yourself a friend of Caesar. And that's precisely what we will tell Caesar. The religious leaders are playing on Pilate's precarious political position here. Because they need Pilate to sign off on crucifying Jesus. Now, they could stone Jesus like they do with Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Pilate then would look the other way. But the religious leaders know they can't get away with that because Jesus is too popular with the people. They need somehow then to eliminate Jesus without being blamed by the Jewish people. And Pilate is the perfect person to do that. They've just got to coerce Pilate into a crucifixion. And if they're able to do that, that will send a clear message to the Jewish people because Jewish law said that if you died by crucifixion, if you died hanging on a tree, that was proof that you were cursed by God. So, if the religious leaders can coerce Pilate into crucifying Jesus, it will send that message to the Jewish people. They'll be able to say to the Jewish people, look, there hangs Jesus on a tree. There's no way he can be the Messiah. He's a wannabe, a fake, a phony, because remember what Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, that everyone who dies hanging on a tree is cursed by God, not loved by God. But in fact, Jesus dying on a tree has been God's plan all along. Not because he doesn't, God the Father doesn't love God the Son, but because God the Father loves us. And so he's willing to curse his Son with bearing our sins so that we can live with him. Jesus dies cursed in our place. So the religious leaders, they are executing God's plan perfectly, although unintentionally. Now, that's just as true for you 
in your life as it is for those playing politics with Jesus' life. People can play politics, but in the end, God's plan prevails. It's true for you. Do you believe that? God will have the final say. God will right all the wrongs. He will even the scales. God's plan prevails even when people try to pit King Jesus against the Roman emperor because that's what the religious leaders are doing when they deliver Jesus over to Pilate. You see, Pilate couldn't care less if Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Pilate couldn't care less if Jesus is the Messiah. Rome doesn't care about religion. Rome's all about politics. And so the religious leaders change their tune when they bring Jesus to Pilate. Their official charge against Jesus before Pilate isn't that Jesus claims to be the Messiah, as that he claims to be king of the Jews. So he's a threat to Rome. That's what the religious leaders want Pilate to think. And so Pilate asks Jesus straight up, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is as you say. Now John tells us in his gospel that Jesus says, it is as you say, but it doesn't mean what you think. Because my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, Pilate, you wouldn't stand a chance. My servants would be fighting and I would be ruling and reigning. I am not the king of a political kingdom. I'm the king of a spiritual kingdom. That's what I mean when I say, I am king of the Jews. But that's not the only charge that the religious leaders are bringing to Pilate. Luke tells us in his gospel that the religious leaders claim that Jesus has been misleading the nation by forbidding Jews to pay taxes to Caesar. That Jesus has been causing a political stir and uproar among the Jews because of that. Which both of those are bold-faced lies about Jesus. And when, when, when Pilate discloses those charges to Jesus, Jesus, notice, Jesus is silent. He is eerily silent. Pilate is not used to people being silent before him. But Jesus is. And so Pilate asks, have you no answer to make, Jesus? Because there's a whole boatload of charges against you. And still, Jesus is silent. He's silent not because he's guilty, but because he's innocent. I think there's something here for us. So here's an application. When people play politics with you, when they spread lies about you, when they mischaracterize what you do or misinterpret what you say, there are times when silence is the best response. Don't feed into those lies. When Jesus is asked, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the Messiah? It is as you say. When the false charges are brought against him, Jesus is silent. And when Jesus is silent, Pilate is blown away. He is amazed, the end of verse 5. The Greek word here tells us that 
that Pilate is fascinated with Jesus. He's strangely somehow attracted to Jesus. It's like when you see something totally out of the ordinary, something you've never seen before, and you're so blown away that you can't look away. You're, you're captivated. You're fascinated. That's Pilate with Jesus. But listen, fascination with Jesus is not faith in Jesus. So many people today are intrigued by Jesus, his wisdom, his power, his humility. They'll say something like, you know, he was a good guy. He did a lot of good things. He taught some really good stuff. Okay. No big deal. I'm just, I'm neutral on Jesus. That's Pilate here. Pilate thinks he can sidestep a decision on Jesus. Why? Because he's holding in his hand a get-out-of-jail-free card in verse 6. It's in that verse that we learn that during Passover, Pilate would show goodwill by releasing a Jewish political prisoner. And this is where we're introduced to a man named Barabbas. He's the political pawn in this scene. He's an insurrectionist, or at least he's been a part of a, an insurrectionist group. And evidently, that group had murdered at least one Roman official. And the religious leaders are going to use Barabbas to their advantage. When the crowd asks Pilate to release that criminal, as was his custom, Pilate's got to be thinking to himself, you know, this is... This is my out. I'll just release Jesus. I mean, he hasn't done anything against Rome. The only reason that they have brought him here to me is because they are envious of him. And so Pilate says to the crowd, he turns to the crowd and he says, do you want me to release for you Jesus, the king of the Jews? And I think we would expect in a first reading of this, what Pilate expects here, we would expect the crowd to say, yes. I mean, it's obvious. Release Jesus. He's done nothing but heal our sick and raise our dead and capture his heart, our hearts with his word. But that isn't what they say. Because the religious leaders are there in the crowd and they're feeding the crowd their lines. We don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. And Pilate is beside himself. And what should I do with this man you call king of the Jews? Read our lips, Pilate. We want Barabbas. Crucify Jesus or else. And Pilate can't believe his ears. He's wanting to skate on this thing, but the crowd is getting out of hand. So he asks, why? Why should I crucify him? What evil has he done? But notice the crowd doesn't answer that question. They simply repeat their demand, crucify Jesus. Pilate must make a decision on Jesus. If he releases Jesus, word will get back to Rome and he'll be stripped of his position. But if he releases Barabbas, an innocent man will die. And Pilate knows that. He's fully aware of that. When wishing to satisfy the crowd, he sends word to Barabbas in prison and frees him. Jesus will die. 
Which is why Pilate stands before that crowd and washes his hands in front of them saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. But he's not. Because then he has Jesus whipped with a cat of nine tails. Now, we need to understand, because this is part of the punishment that Jesus endures for our sins, he's paying that punishment in full, and so we need to understand the kind of scourging that Jesus endured. A Roman soldier would have taken a cat of nine tails, that is a whip with nine leather straps, with shards of glass and stones sewn into those straps, and they would whip then Jesus. Muscles would be lacerated, veins and arteries torn open, and it was not uncommon during one of these beatings for internal organs to be left exposed. The Jews limited the number of strikes to no more than 39 because a 40th lashing would often result in death. But the Romans had no limit. The beating Jesus endures here is so intensely horrific that Isaiah chapter 52 says that Jesus is beaten beyond human recognition. This is the brokenness of our world playing out in high definition. This is what playing politics with Jesus looks like. But let me be clear, Jesus is not a political victim. He's a willing sacrifice. When Pilate delivers Jesus over to death, Pilate is delivering up the deliverer. Jesus is not being forced to die. He is choosing to die. He is not pleading his case to Pilate. He is not blaming the chief priests. He is submitting and surrendering, sacrificing his life in silence. This is love. This is, listen, I get you where you are, where you live, what you deal with, the politics. I get it. I know it. I feel it. I am not a victim here. I am a sacrifice. It's John 10, verses 17 and 18, where Jesus has already said, listen, I want you to know that I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord, my own will, my own choice. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And so Jesus dies willingly, subjecting himself to the fullness and fury of this world's brokenness in dying, not just for our sin, but because of our sin. Now listen, please. We will never understand what it means for Jesus to die for our sin until we understand that Jesus dies because of our sin. And so we aren't just readers looking in on this scene from the outside. We're players in this scene. We are all Pilate. 
We are all complicit in crucifying Jesus because it's our sin that condemned him. He isn't dying for what he's done. He's dying for what we have done. That's why I'm always quoting to you 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins. Our sins. That's why he suffers. Because of our sins. He's the righteous one taking the place of the unrighteous ones. Why? So that he might bring us to God. He's the only way. He's the only way we could be forgiven. He's the only way we could be freed. He's the only way we could have an eternity in heaven. He is the only way. On the cross then, Jesus, the sinless one, trades places with sinful ones. So that when we come to Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, we get what Barabbas gets here. We get freedom. We get forgiveness. Barabbas walks away a free man because Jesus climbs onto his cross as a condemned man. Barabbas gets life because Jesus dies his death. Barabbas does nothing to contribute to his freedom. Jesus does it all. As I was preparing this text this week, and I got to this part of the text, I asked myself, I wonder, did Barabbas ever get what that meant for him? that Jesus died on the cross where he should have died. And then I asked, I wonder if everyone in this room gets what that means for us. It means we contribute nothing. It means Jesus' death lacks nothing. It means Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for you have been saved by grace through faith. Not of yourselves. It's not anything we've done. We deserve the cross. Jesus took the cross. It is a gift. Not of works lest any of us should boast. And so what Jesus has said earlier in John chapter 3 as he speaks with Nicodemus is true. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus gives his life. The Father gives the Son to give his life. And whoever believes in him, like Barabbas, won't perish, but instead will have eternal life. Did Barabbas get that? I don't know. Do you get that? I pray so. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you, have you come to Jesus? Have you brought your sins to Jesus? It says, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm relying only on you to win me entrance into God's heaven. I throw myself on your grace. I trust in you and in you alone. Would you come to Jesus? And when you do, then there are three takeaways from this scene for you. How do we, even as followers of Jesus, how do we guard our hearts against ever playing politics with Jesus? We would never play politics with Jesus, right? 
I mean, Jesus, if you love me, then why? Jesus, if you love me, then why can't I? We would never play politics with Jesus, or would we? If you really cared, if you even understood. So many times I think I find myself right here with Pilate and the religious leaders. So here are three ways that we can guard against playing politics with Jesus. Number one, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness rather than your own kingdom. You see, every day we are faced with situations that reveal whose kingdom we're all about. Situations where we're tempted to cave like Pilate and to satisfy the crowd, to go with the flow, to fit in rather than to stand out. We say, I'll just do me. I'll cheat on the physics test. I'll fudge a bit on my income taxes. I'll hem and haw when my neighbor asks me if I am really one of those radical, fanatical followers of Jesus who really believes the Bible. You see, what we do in those moments reveals where our loyalty lies. So as Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 33, may God make us this kind of people that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when we do that, then secondly, we will serve people rather than use people. Do we view people, do we view others as pawns to be played or people to be loved? Do we demand respect from our wife? Listen, after all I do for you and this is the thanks I get? Or do we manipulate our husband through guilt? If you really loved me, you'd give me more of your time and more of your energy. Do we play mind games with our kids? If you only knew how good you've got it, you'd appreciate me more. When we play these kinds of games with people, we're mirroring these religious leaders. We're manipulating people to be who we want them to be and to do what we want them to do for us. But when Jesus lays down his life for us, he is calling us to do the same for others. 1 John 3, verse 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, greatness is all about serving. The way up is by going down. Glory comes through sacrifice. And that's why playing politics should never, ever be a thing in this church. Ever. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I think. This is not your church. This is not my church. It's not about us. This is Jesus' church. He is the only one who has purchased it with His own blood. Amen? We have no right to demand we have no right to politic. We have no right to say, I want it my way. At all. This church belongs to Jesus. 
So guard your heart against playing politics with him and his people. Serve people. Love people. Don't use people. The only way you're going to be able to do that is by number three. By acknowledging and believing and embracing the truth that Jesus is everything we need. He's all the king we need. Let me ask, why do people play politics? Why do people attempt to manipulate other people in situations for their own benefit? There are only two reasons why. Number one, I don't have something I think I need. So I'll do whatever it takes to get it. Or number two, I don't want to lose something that I have that I think I need. And so I'm going to keep it and guard it. Can I ask a question? Hasn't God promised to give us everything we need? You see, that's why these religious leaders are playing politics here. They're envious of Jesus. They have something they think they need, and so they're going to do whatever it takes to guard that. They don't want to lose that. Everybody's going after Jesus, and they're not coming to them. But what they don't get is that the king they don't want is all the king they need. He's all the king we all need. He's the answer to our every need. When we're weary, he's our rest. When we're lost, he's the way. In our darkness, he's the light. In a world of lies, he's the truth. When we are weak, he's our strength. When we're thirsty, he's the living water. And when we come to die, he's the resurrection and the life. What do you do with that kind of king? You don't play politics with him. You love him. You bow before him. You adore him because you can't live without him. Because to be all of that for you, he entered the full fury of this world's brokenness to be delivered up for you. And that's why all of us can echo the words of King David in Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my Shepherd, I shall not want ever. Jesus is all the king we need. He is enough. Amen. Father, now as we move into a part of our service where we will remember the sacrifice of Jesus and celebrate that. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would believe with a fresh heart and see with fresh eyes, having heard with fresh ears that, that Jesus is enough. So now as we feed our souls on all that you are for us in Jesus, may he receive the glory. In his name, amen.